I'll be speaking with a woman who survived abortion today. Oh, yes, and we'll weigh in on the president's deal of the century Mideast peace plan. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You do not want to miss a single moment of today's broadcast. Number to call 866-34-TRUTH. At the bottom of the hour, I'll be joined by Gianna Jessen, an amazing story to tell an amazing woman. She is an abortion survivor. Yeah, I've got some further updates from the Democrat Party on abortion that you want to hear about as well. But first, we're going to look at the president's Mideast peace plan just unveiled today. What are we to make of the so-called deal of the century three years in the making? At a press conference today, President Trump mentioned how when he'd be doing a business deal, people would say, yeah, this is almost as hard as the Israeli-Palestinian peace plan. That's the toughest of all. And President Trump said, yes, it is the toughest of all. And in the natural, impossible in terms of a long-term peace solution that can only come through Jesus, the Messiah, and the peoples of the region bowing down and embracing him. But what do we make of this? for the moment. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it feasible? Uh, Let me first go through an outline of the peace plan. Jerusalem Post has a useful article, uh, The Deal of the Century, What Are the Key Elements of It? What are its key points? So in terms of borders, Trump's plan features a map of what Israel's new borders will be should it enact the plan fully. Israel will retain 20% of the West Bank and will lose a small amount of land in the Negev near the Gaza-Egypt border. The Palestinians will have a pathway to a state in the vast majority of territory in the West Bank. That's Judea, Samaria, biblically. While Israel will maintain control of all its borders, this is the first time a U.S. president has provided a detailed map of this kind. If you remember under President Obama, there was talk about going back to the the pre-67 borders, which are suicidal, which are indefensible. Israel cannot live securely in such borders. So this is a major change in that regard. As far as Jerusalem, the Palestinians will have a capital in East Jerusalem based on northern and eastern neighborhoods that are outside the Israeli security barrier, and it lists them, Kfar Aqab, uh, Abu Dis, and half of Shuafat. Otherwise, Trump said Jerusalem will remain undivided as Israel's capital, so Jerusalem under Israeli control, and yet there would be an embassy in East Jerusalem, a Palestinian embassy there. Is that dividing Jerusalem? Is this dividing the land? We'll we'll come back to that. As far as settlements, uh, Israel will retain the Jordan Valley and all Israel settlements in the West Bank in the broadest definition possible, meaning not the municipal borders of each settlement, but their security perimeters. This also includes 15 isolated settlements, which will be enclaves within an eventual Palestinian state. Within those settlements, Israel will not be able to build for the next four years. The IDF will have access to the isolated settlements. For the settlement part of the plan to go into effect, Israel will have to take action to apply sovereignty to the settlements, which Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he plans to do at the upcoming cabinet meeting on Sunday. As far as security, Israel will be in control of security from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. The IDF will not have to leave the West Bank. No change to Israel's approach to Judea and Samaria would be needed. As far as a Palestinian state, 
The plan does not include immediate recognition of a Palestinian state. Rather, it expects a willingness on Israel's part to create a pathway toward Palestinian statehood based on specific territory, which is about 70% of Judea and Samaria, including areas A and B and parts of area C. The state will only come into existence in four years if the Palestinians accept the plan, if the Palestinian Authority stops paying terrorists and inciting terrorism, and if Hamas and Islamic Jihad put down their weapons. In addition, the American plan calls on the Palestinians to give up corruption, respect human rights, freedom of religion, and a free press so that they don't have a failed state. If those conditions are met, the U.S. will recognize a Palestinian state and implement a massive economic plan to assist it. And then as for refugees... A limited number of Palestinian refugees and their descendants will be allowed into the Palestinian state. None will enter Israel. And Triangle, the plan leaves open the possibility that Israel will swap the area known as the Triangle, consisting of Kfar Kara, Arara, uh, Baka al-Harbiya, uh, Um al-Fam, and more. I'm not familiar with all those specific details. Into the future Palestinian state, according to the plan, the vision contemplates the possibility, subject to agreement of the parties that the borders of Israel will be withdrawn such that the triangle communities become part of the state of Palestine. All right. Prime Minister Netanyahu was there giving his enthusiastic report. General Benny Gantz, leader of Blue and White. So Netanyahu's chief rival, they've been divided in recent elections. They're going to have a third election now to decide which of them can have more of a majority to form a government. We'll see what happens with that. But from reports, he said that he is in support of this already. Palestinian Authority Chairman Mahmoud Abbas has rejected this, saying it needs to be thrown into the dustbin of history. Before the plan was even released, there were reports of thousands of Gazan Palestinians protesting the plan. And you can imagine how it would have been represented to them. And anyway, with Hamas controlling Gaza, ruling Gaza, you can imagine how the plan strikes them because they could no longer be in power and they could no longer be devoted to eliminating Israel, which is their very reason for existence. <clears throat> so how does this play out? First, there are evangelical Christians, Messianic Jews, who say no two-state solution ever under any circumstance. That is to divide the land. And Joel 3 categorically speaks against dividing the land when the nations of the world divide the land. There's much to be said for that. And some of my friends who've studied this for years hold to that position very clearly and dearly. At the same time, it's also possible to read Joel chapter 3, verse 2, is talking about the nations dividing the land up for themselves. In other words, you take this part, I take this part, with, with Israel out of the land. That could be what it's speaking about. In any case, here's, here's my basic position. We are not going to get anything ideal and full in this age, all right? And we're not dealing with a fully repentant Israel. So this is all by grace that our people are back in the land and Israel is restored. So... First point is, even though there are reasons to argue against a two-state solution, even though Caroline Glick and others have argued for a one-state solution, if you're just trying to be pragmatic about it, if this has the support of Netanyahu, Gantz, our ambassador, David Friedman, who's a real friend of Israel, if it has their support, then I'm not going to reject it and say, well, no, it's got to be higher and better. Again, this is just at first glance looking at it. Second thing, as for the Palestinians, and I'm obviously not a spokesperson for the Palestinians and, and Palestinians that are listening to this or watching it or reading the article I'm going to post on this might reject every word I say. But my understanding 
of, of the hopes and dreams of the, of the Palestinian people, those who identify as Palestinians today, the historic Arabs that have been living in the region in recent generations, and some for many generations. If I understand, their desire is for dignity, self-respect, the right to self-determination, a freedom to make choices about education, about vocation, and, and to have a hope for their children and for the future. And for your average Palestinian, that is far more important to them than getting rid of Israel or, or having more territory. If they could really live with freedom, live with the right to self-determination, okay, maybe some will not go back to where their grandparents or great-grandparents lived and they'll be living somewhere else in that immediate region. But if they can have great educational opportunities, great vocational opportunities, that they can be prospering much more. If the unemployment rate in Gaza were to plummet, I mean, it's astronomical now. Of course, the world blames Israel, and a more realistic thing to do is, is blame the Hamas leadership. But if the Palestinians could really have that hope, wouldn't they want to do it? Wouldn't they want to say, absolutely, let's embrace it? Again, let my Palestinian friends, especially Palestinian Christian friends, correct me if I'm wrong. But I would think that's what they desire more, just like your average Israeli is, is longing for, for peace and a, and a good future for their, for their children in the next generations. The problem is the Palestinian leadership, and that brings us to the real rub. There have been bloody, very bloody civil wars already between Palestinian Authority and Hamas, already. And Hamas is probably growing in influence and power, not decreasing. How in the world is the Palestinian Authority effectively going to dismantle and disarm Hamas or Islamic Jihad? How in the world is that going to happen? And, and the leadership has been the problem. Ephraim Karsh in his book, Palestine Betrayed, lays out that the, the, the Arab leaders, the Palestinian leaders, have consistently made the wrong choices for their people and hurt their people long term. This would be another classic example. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas has already said, of course, we're going to, in, in, in recent months, scorn President Trump's call to stop funding uh, Palestinian prisoners. So you're in prison in Israel for an act of terror. You know, you stab several people, you're in a prison in Israel. You get supported by the Palestinian Authority, by their funds. You, you're, your son blows himself up and kills uh, 11 Israeli children. Your family, as the family of a martyr, gets a stipend. And President Trump says, if you want this deal, if we're going to pour money into you and help develop jobs and, and, and make your future brighter, you're going to have to renounce the corruption. You're going to have to renounce the incitement to hatred. That means you're going to have to change your textbooks in school that demonize Israel. That means you're going to have to change some of your broadcasting that demonizes Israel. As, as for corruption, I, I have talked to Palestinian Arabs and, and Palestinian Christians, Palestinian Muslims, Palestinian Christians who are not friends of Israel who think that, that Israel is, is, a, is a wicked regime in many, many ways. And they'd be the first to say, we despise the Palestinian leadership. We despise our leadership. They are corrupt. So when you have this so much built into the whole system, it, it's, it's almost, uh, I hate to say it in these terms, but for some of the corrupt leaders, it's, it's almost like saying to a, to a fish, we'll make a great deal with you when you learn to fly. I mean, I just don't see it in the cards, so to say, as being in their wheelhouse, in their nature. There is a famous quote from Golda Meir, whether she said it herself or it's attributed to her. And, and, and it says this. It says that peace will come. And she, this, again, maybe her most famous quote. Peace will come when the Arabs, 
will love their children more than they hate us. It seems that's what we're dealing with here. Again, I know there are lots and lots and lots of particulars to think through and work through. But it seems to me that if the Palestinian populace rose up and said, we want a better future for our families, why go on with this endless war, this endless ideological battle? And in fact, they have to realize that the goals that they have striven for for years, it's not going to happen. They're not going to have a Jew-free state, autonomous, doing everything they want. It's just not going to happen. Will they say, hey, we want a better future? And will the surrounding Arab and Muslim nations say, give them a better future and call out the corrupt leadership? Could it happen? It's going to take a miracle in order to accept the deal of the century. But I see the sticking point, from my viewpoint, Palestinian leaders. That's going to be the problem. Not the people, but the leaders. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yeah, just reminded of of Mahmoud Abbas saying that, that he would pay families of martyrs to the last penny. That to me is going to be the, the real rub, the real issue in this peace plan, how the Palestinian leadership will receive it. It's going to take the people rising up as a whole, which means we're going to have to get the information, really know what's at stake. The people rising up as a whole, Israel really reaching out its hand, and the surrounding Muslim nations, many of them mega wealthy, saying, hey, we'll help, we'll work with you. But many of them are not friends of the Palestinian leadership at all. So we shall see. Okay. I, I am. Uh, feel free to call in if you want to weigh in with your thoughts on the peace plan. We've just got a few minutes before I'm going to be bringing a guest on 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Uh, we'll be posting the video of this separately, my, my little talk about this, as well as an article that I'm just finishing up now that we'll, we'll be posting on various sites uh, over the next 24 hours. And then we'll, we'll look more, we'll reflect more, probably talk more about it on Thursday. But shifting gears now. Isn't it interesting how in a period of, of what, five days, so from Friday to Tuesday, President Trump has done two of the most important things in the history of his administration and in the history of recent American presidents. One, he is the first sitting president to address the March for Life in Washington, D.C., so a massive pro-life statement, and two, He is the first sitting president to put forth a proposal of this nature for a Middle East peace plan. These these things are massively significant at the same time that his impeachment trial is taking place. Now, I I, want to draw a contrast for you. I'm not saying that to be Christian, you have to vote Republican. If you know, you've heard me say I'm I'm registered as an independent, just as my way of saying I, I do not have a primary allegiance to either party. I have a primary allegiance to honor the Lord and then to vote accordingly. It's just just for me. You may be fine registering with a party. But I'm not saying that you have to be voting Republican to be following Jesus. 
I'm not saying that if you vote Democrat, you can't be following Jesus. I, I just want to lay out some thoughts for you. 1996, Democrat presidential platform with President Bill Clinton. Let's, let's take a look and see what was in that when it comes to abortion. 1996, when it came to the subject of, quote, choice, in other words, abortion. The Democratic Party stands behind the right of every woman to choose, consistent with Roe v. Wade, and regardless of ability to pay. President Clinton took executive action to make sure that the right to make such decisions is protected for all Americans. Over the last four years, we have taken action to end the gag rule and ensure safety at family planning and women's health clinics. We believe it is a fundamental constitutional liberty that individual Americans, not government, can best take responsibility for making the most difficult and intensely personal decisions regarding reproduction. The Democratic Party is a party of inclusion. We respect the individual conscience of every American on this difficult issue, and we welcome all our members to participate at every level of our party. So there's the olive branch. There's the say, hey, we know you may not agree with us, but we want you to be part of our party. Our goal is to make abortion less necessary and more rare, not more difficult and more dangerous. We support contraceptive research, family planning, comprehensive family life education, and policies that support healthy childbearing for four years in a row. We have increased support for family planning. The abortion rate is dropping. Now we must continue to support efforts to reduce unintended pregnancies, and we call on all Americans to take personal responsibility to meet this important goal. That was 1996. Now let's look at the last election cycle with Hillary Clinton. Let's look at the party platform for 2016. Securing reproductive health rights and justice, Democrats are committed to protecting and advancing reproductive health rights and justice. We believe unequivocally, like the majority of Americans, that every woman should have access to quality reproductive health care services, including safe and legal abortion, regardless of where she lives, how much money she makes, or how she is insured. We believe that reproductive health is core to women's, men's, and young people's health and well-being. We will continue to stand up to Republican efforts to defund Planned Parenthood health centers, which provide critical health services to millions of people. We will continue to oppose and seek to overturn federal and state laws and policies that impede a woman's access to abortion, including by repealing the Hyde Amendment. We condemn and will combat any acts of violence, harassment, intimidation of reproductive health providers, patients and staff. We will defend the ACA, which extends affordable, preventable health care to women, including no-cost contraception and prohibits discrimination in health care based on gender. And it, it goes on. Uh, I'm just going to read from the end. We strongly and unequivocally support a woman's decision to have a child, including by ensuring a safe and healthy pregnancy. Well, that's, that's nice to put that in there. We, we affirm her decision to have a child because all we're saying is we affirm her decision to abort. But nowhere is there language of inclusion. There is no big tent there. There's no reference to abortion being less necessary and more rare. So in that light, there was a Fox News-hosted town hall with Mayor Pete, and he was asked an interesting question. So let's go into that town hall in light of what you just heard, the contrast from 1996 to 2016. And this woman raising this question may speak for many of you who've been Democrat over the years, but who identify as pro-life. Listen to what she had to say. We have a question now from Kristen Day about abortion. Kristen. Well, I am a proud pro-life Democrat. So do you want the support of pro-life Democrats, pro-life Democratic voters? There are about 21 million of us. And if so, would you support more moderate platform language in the Democratic Party to ensure that the party of diversity and inclusion 
really does include everybody. Ah, a well-worded question and a very fair question. If you were the party of diversity and inclusion, if that's something you, you shout from the rooftops and champion all the time, then, in fact, will you go out of your way to say, and even though this is our position on abortion, we welcome those who are pro-life into our midst, into our camp. Listen to Mayor Pete's response. <laughs> well, I respect where you're coming from, and I hope to earn your vote, but I'm not going to try to earn your vote by tricking you. Uh, I am pro-choice. And I believe that a woman ought to be able to make that decision. Here's what I... But I know that the difference of opinion that you and I have is one that we have come by honestly. And the best that I can offer, and it may win your vote, and if not, I understand. The best I can offer is that if we can agree on where to draw the line, the next best thing we can do is agree on who should draw the line. And in my view, it's the woman who's faced with that decision in her own life. All right. So nothing about the rights of the baby, nothing about the life of the baby. I appreciate him being honest and saying, no, there, there is no room for you if you want us to be embracing of our views because we don't. And he's saying, if I was president, I would not. So Chris Wallace then follows up and then asks this woman if that addresses or satisfies her question. This is an interesting moment because President Trump spoke at the March to Life movement. He was the first president ever to actually appear at the March to Life movement. And I'm curious, Kristen, were you satisfied with the answer you got from the mayor? I was not because he did not answer the second part of my question. And the second part was the Democratic platform contains language that basically says that we don't belong, we have no part in the party, because it says abortion should be legal up to nine months, the government should pay for it. And there's nothing that says that people have a diversity of views on this issue should be included in the party. In 1996, and several years after that, there was a language in the Democratic platform that said that we understand that people have very differing views on this issue, but we are a big tent party that includes everybody, and so therefore we welcome you people like me into the party so we can work on issues that we agree on. Yeah. So I, my question was, do you, would you be open to language like that in the, the Democratic pop, platform that really did say that our party is diverse and inclusive and we want everybody? A, a reasonable question, a fair question. It could be a question that if someone was pro-abortion and they wanted to vote Republican, they could ask the Republicans that side of the question here because the Democrats pride themselves in being inclusive and the, the party of diversity and, and constantly critique the Republicans for lack of inclusion and lack of diversity. This is a more pointed question for the Democrats, also because their platform language has changed so much in 20 years, become much more militant concerning abortion, and the candidates now are far more militant concerning abortion. All of the Democrat candidates, the leading candidates that have made their, their views known are far more militant, say, than President Clinton was, and his language was, and the Democratic language was as a whole 20 years ago. So here is the answer from Mayor Pete. Well, I support the position of my party uh, that this kind of medical care needs to be available to everyone. Uh, and I support the Roe versus Wade framework uh, that holds that early in pregnancy, there are very few restrictions and late in pregnancy, there are very few exceptions. And again, the best I can offer is that we may disagree on that very important issue. 
uh, and hopefully we will be able to partner on other issues. So in other words, no, no, your position is not one that he would embrace as part of the party platform, that he would not favor any kind of language as in the 96 platform saying this is a difficult personal decision. And of course, when he was pushed, even in terms of late term abortion, and this is the man who's quoting the Bible more than any of the candidates on either side, ironically, a man, quote, married to his homosexual partner, church going and quoting scripture and calling Mike Pence and evangelicals who support Trump hypocrites. He would not, even when push came to shove, say that late term abortion was wrong. No, that is the woman's choice. What? A shocking, clear contrast. For those who want to vote Democrat, just look at your party's platform. Think it through before the Lord and make your decisions accordingly. That's what I seek to do when I vote. I hope you'll do the same thing. We'll be right back with a woman who survived abortion. SportsOfJesus.com It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. If you are just tuning in, earlier in the broadcast, I gave my thoughts on the president's peace plan. We'll be posting it as a separate video a little later today. I'll have an article about it out later today as well. And I'm sure later in the week we'll be reflecting, weighing in more Number to call 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. A couple months back, I had the joy of meeting Jonna Jessen. I had seen her story. I've seen some videos of her speaking. Just looking at her bio, she has words of support from President Bush and from Mother Teresa. What did she do to, to earn these accolades? What's her story? Why do we need to hear it? Well, it's, it's not every day you talk to someone who survived abortion and, and who has lived through an attempt to take one's life while still in the womb, only to come out and be a pro-life champion. So, Gianna, it is wonderful to have you on the line of fire. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, how are you today? I'm, I'm doing great. Appreciate your spirit and your enthusiasm so, Gianna, for those who don't know you, tell us your story. Start okay. at the beginning. I will. Thanks for having me on, sir. Yeah, um, you bet. Uh, I am 42, about to be 43, and my I'm adopted, and my biological parents were just 17, and my biological mother was seven and a half months pregnant when she went to Planned Parenthood in Southern California, and they said, you're too young to have a baby, you need to go have a late-term saline abortion. Mm. A saline abortion is a saline salt solution that is injected into the mother's womb. The baby then gulps that solution. It is to burn, blind, and suffocate the child, Mm. and then the baby is to be born dead within 24 hours, except that I was born alive in an abortion clinic in Los Angeles uh, after 18 hours of 
being burned alive in my mother's womb because of the power of Jesus Christ. He was with me in the fire, and he is my keeper to this day. And um, so it says, this is amazing to read. I've done this on my birthday before, um, because my medical records state on them, born during saline abortion, April the 6th, 1977, 6 a.m., 29 and a half weeks, two mm. and a half pounds. Now listen to this part. No resuscitation required upon arrival at the hospital. Mm. That makes that makes no sense unless we serve an almighty God. No resuscitation required after you're being burned alive in your mother's womb. Mm. And then my enemies love to say, I'm lying, I'm lying, because of course everything they don't want to hear today, you know, they say that you're lying even though I have medical records that prove what I am saying. Uh, and so an Ital- I do a lot of work in Italy, and an Italian neonatologist said, you, I, I asked him, because my enemies love to say that I'm lying because I don't have burns on my body and I'm not blind. I forgot I, to finish my thought. And I said, doctor, why do you think I have no burns on my body and I'm not blind? And he said, I believe my medical explanation is that I believe that the that the uh, amniotic fluid was more powerful than the saline solution and protected you. He said that's my medical opinion, but both you and I know it was Jesus. It was Jesus, mm. and this is a guy that does work in utero on Down syndrome children. He knows what he's talking about. And he said, what I want to explain to you, Gianna, and I actually was beginning to cry because it, it made a lot of my life make sense. It was very emotional. He said, you have endured the highest level of physical and emotional trauma that is humanly possible. Mm. Uh, and so that was really interesting. But, Doctor, I'm concerned about one thing before saying another syllable, and it is this. I know that there are women listening that have had abortions. I know there are men listening who have paid for them or have played some part in this, because one out of every three women in the church has had an abortion. Mm. So I want you to hear my voice right now, those of you that this speaks to, those of you that have that history. And if you're hearing a mean voice in your heart that sounds something like this, do you hear what she's saying? Do you know what you've done? Do you remember what you did? You're never going to be free. Listen, that is the voice of the accuser. There is no sin beyond the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. I am not, I am not telling this story to condemn you, but really so that you will know that the one name above all names is the only name that can free you. And and you must repent, and you must ask for forgiveness. But once that happens, oh my goodness, you can be free, and you can, you can really, really be free. So why try to keep paying for something that Jesus has already paid for? And I just had to say that because I'm so concerned about how many people might be pulling over on the side of the road right now listening to my voice and just sobbing. Because yeah. maybe for the first time in 25 years, it's coming up. Yeah, and, and, and Gianna, yeah, Gianna, when I've opened up the phones over the years and said, hey, if, if, if maybe it's a show like this, and, and I've said, if you had an abortion and you want to weigh in and just talk to others and, and share your heart, 
some of the most heart-wrenching calls we've ever had. I, I mean, everybody's crying. The people weeping on the phone. I'm, I'm sitting here yes. fighting back tears. Listeners and viewers are, are crying. And, and even though they know they're forgiven, there's a certain pain. And now, you're, for many, you're the voice of that child. You're the survivor. Yes. You're, you're the voice of their own child. So as, as you're listening to these words, take them in. It's now not just the voice of John, but the voice of the Lord saying there's mercy and forgiveness and hope. You can be forgiven, but not only that, the, the sense of guilt can be removed, and then God can use that pain you felt over the years to make you an ambassador for life and to save the lives of others. Now, now, Gianna, at what point in life did you find out your story? When did you learn you were adopted, and when did you learn why you were adopted? Well, if I may just back up really quickly yeah, and sure. help it make sense, yeah. Uh, so I was born in that abortion clinic and uh, didn't die. And the reason I didn't die also is because the abortionist wasn't there yet at work. Had he been there, he would have ended my life with strangulation, suffocation, or leaving me there to die. <sighs> so it gave the nurse a chance to call an ambulance and get me out of there. Placed in the incubator wing, two pounds. Every doctor said, this baby's never going to live. And then after several months of not dying... They concluded that I had a tremendous will to live, that I didn't want to die. So I was taken from the hospital, placed eventually in emergency foster care with some pretty mean people. So I had to be taken out of there and placed in another foster home of a woman by the name of Penny. So by this time, I'm 17 months old, 32 pounds of dead weight, and diagnosed with cerebral palsy, which was caused directly by a lack of oxygen to my brain while I was surviving an abortion. Mm. So then they said to Penny, well, Jonah will never be anything. And how, how many times are you hearing that now with, with people? They're never going to be this. They're never yep. going to be that. They're never going to... Well, the only person that can determine our destiny is Christ Jesus. So if he wants you to get up out of a bed and walk, that's exactly what you'll do, and that's exactly what I did. They looked at Penny and said, as I just said, she'll never get out of this bed. And Penny did not believe them. Think about that. One woman, one woman with faith changed the whole course of my life. And she did my physical therapy three times a day. Began to hold up my head, sit up, crawl, and walk by the age of three and a half with a walker and leg braces. At that juncture... I was adopted by Penny's daughter, which made my foster mother Penny then my grandmother. Mm. And so I, I love adoption. I want everyone to hear that I love adoption. <laughs> I just had a challenging one. And one of the reasons is because I was constantly being told, that book, The Strong-Willed Child, was written about you. And it never occurred to anyone that I needed a strong will to survive being burned alive in my mother's womb. Really? Or that I would need a strong will to learn how to walk once and then after spinal surgery at 10, or to complete two marathons by running on my toes for seven and eight hours, or to mm. preach the real gospel, and not just about the cocktail party Jesus that we're hearing about all the time, just to keep the neighbors happy, but who doesn't save anyone? It takes a strong will to stand for Christ. And I needed all of that. So at the age of 12, to answer your question, finally, on Christmas Day, because my life has always been bizarre, I went downstairs and I said, ask my adoptive mother, 
why do I have cerebral palsy? And she always responded with, because you had a, you know, you were a premature baby or because you had a traumatic birth. But something inside me was not satisfied with that answer. So I asked her again and I had no clue. And right before she said it, I'm telling you, I promise you this, the words were in my mind and I looked at her and I said, I was aborted, right? Wow. And she said, yes. Like, oh my word, you know, this kid's 12 years old. And, but it was the Holy Spirit. I love him. He's a genius. <laughs> and, and so he was keeping me in that moment. He was keeping me, I believe, from, from being crushed by the weight of that information and comforting me. <clears throat> and I said, well, <laughs> at least I have cerebral palsy for an interesting reason. And I, and I just went on and, and kind of carried on. And then, I, and then I began speaking, which I would not recommend at the age of 14. Um, <laughs> and, and, and just trying to tell everyone the truth and, and most importantly, preach the gospel. I am a little evangelist. Yeah, well, that is, that is self-evident, Jonna. And, and I'm glad you, you stepped back and put all those other important things in. We're, we're going to unpack this on the other side of the break. We've just got 30 seconds before the break, but if folks want to connect with your ministry and the work you do, what's the best place to go? Myname.com, giannajessen.com, G-I-A-N-N-A-J-E-S-S-E-N.com. All right, That's friends. That's the best way. All right, we will be back shortly with Gianna Jessen. And listen, when we come back, I'm just going to turn her loose. Whatever she wants to talk about, uh, this little evangelist is, is going to do it. And yeah, this is... This is an amazing testimony of God's grace and God's purpose. For all of you who've been told your whole life you'll never amount to anything, God's never going to use you for this reason or that reason, Gianna's words are a word of rebuke to that and a word of hope. Yeah, you've heard it. With God, all things are possible. Yes, we can in Him do all things He calls us to do. What a voice. Gianna Jessen, G-I-A-N-N-A-J-E-S-N-E-N. We'll be right back. Jeffress, go to ptv.org. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I'm speaking with abortion survivor, strong-willed Gianna Jessen, determined to live, determined to overcome cerebral palsy, and determined to face down all enemies' opposition and be a voice for life. Gianna, before I turn you loose to just say whatever you want to say to our audience now, what's your state of mind in terms of whether you're encouraged or discouraged by the situation in America today, pro-life movement, where we are today. Are you encouraged? Do you think progress is being made? Or are you just like, come on, when are we going to wake up? This is a joke. What are you feeling? I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a multifaceted uh, answer. And before we go, don't let me forget to address, because I can get off on a tangent, don't let me forget to address the forgiveness of my biological mother. I don't want to forget that, okay? You bet, you bet. Uh, Okay, thanks. Uh, I feel a couple things. One is, oh my gosh, President Trump, hello, going to the uh, 
the March for Life, we've never had a president do what he did the other day. Oh, my word. So amazing. So beautiful. So wonderful. So happy about that. So happy seeing young people understand more and more and more. You know, we are a majority pro-life nation now uh, because of the young people, you know, understanding what the truth is. They may be a little confused on some other things, but man, they are they are extremely pro-life. The thing that is concerning me a bit is I believe one reason that we are so strong as a movement is because we have been we have been able to be unified um, for many many years in in spite of our many many different denominations, our different you know. Uh, theological beliefs or whatever. We, we come together, you know, for the unborn. But now what I'm seeing is a, a lot of this, well, you know, our, uh, we're doing it better over here. And you may be pro-life, but, you know, you really need to change it like this. And you're not doing, you know what I'm saying? A lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of that, a lot that is, has made us strong and successful. Now from within, I'm noticing well, they're good, but they're not good enough, and we're better. And that that ego is 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 at work. Right, we, we don't gotta, get anywhere with ego. No, I mean no. And the, and the last issue is 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 how we feel. The the only issue is is a matter of life. All right, you're coming to terms with your biological birth mother. What happened? Thank you for the reminder. You uh, bet. All right, so. <laughs> I like you. <laughs> we get along. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> um, so everybody always asks me, you know, have you ever met your biological mother? Have you ever met your biological mother? And and uh, as if as if that meeting would be like, you know, the Oprah, you know, an Oprah moment or the Hallmark Channel. It could not have been more opposite. Um, I believe that God speaks to us because he says that he does. My sheep know my voice. And I was on an airplane once, and I heard the Lord clearly say, what would you do if your biological mother came to an event? And what would you say? And he, rapid-fire questions, I mean, and I kept answering them and answering them. And I should have had a clue. But the Lord is such a good Father Mm. that he doesn't say, oh, by the way, this is about to happen in two weeks, and enjoy that anxiety for the next 14 days. So I show up to an event. It is my habit to greet each person after each event, because it's like a church in and of itself, that meeting time with people. Right. And and this woman comes up, and she just looks at me, and she says, Hi, I'm your mother. And oh, boy. I, yeah, and I, I just went silently to myself, Jesus, 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 because the battle is never against flesh and blood, and it wasn't now. But I knew that I needed him, and I needed to know what to do, because it was like the universe was crushing me. Yep. And I, I, I just called on his name, and I looked at her, and I said, Ma'am, I am a Christian, and I forgive you. I don't want your forgiveness. I said, Ma'am. Are you serious? Whoa. I am a Christian, <sighs> and I forgive you. I don't want your forgiveness. Your father is this, and you are this, and you are an embarrassment to this family. And and I knew what I had to do, because the Lord was dealing with me, showing me what to do each step of the way. And I said, ma'am, 
I am a Christian and I forgive you, but I will no longer allow you to speak to me in this manner. And I got up and I walked out and I sobbed for three hours. But I, I say this for this reason. Yes, I, I have forgiven her, but also I think part of her rage was, number one, she would have to admit what she had done, and she wasn't willing to do that if she received my forgiveness. She wasn't willing yeah. to do that. Yeah. Secondly, she could have told me I was the devil himself, and she could see it didn't matter. It couldn't touch me. It couldn't harm me. Because I no longer was hurt, I was hit. And I'm telling you, whoever's listening to this, wherever you come from, I come from the longest line of heathens in the world. You can be the first one in your family line that changes the rest of it. You can be defined by what has happened to you, but if you have given your heart and surrendered to Christ, victimhood is left at that place of surrender. We are victors in him. We are not defined by what has been done to us, but by what he is and has done for us and continues to do. So we are victors, always. He is leading us in triumph, always. Yeah, what what a word, Gianna. What a, again, I, on every level, I can't re, re, relate to any of the emotions you experienced. In, in every way, my life does not intersect. I, I was born by welcoming parents who loved me and doted over me. Uh, I, so I, everything in your life experience is different than mine. So I can just stand back and, and only imagine the trauma of that experience of meeting her. And then offering forgiveness. I mean, why is she even at your meeting to yell at you and to be cruel, you know, and then to get that response and then to, to sob through that. But you are where you are. And I think there's, there's a message for so many others. You are where you are because you had to break someone's hold over your life. You did it in the womb. You did it coming out of the womb and you had to do it again then. And I think that's a very important message that, that some of us live under someone else's heel or having to get their approval or affirmation. And we never just say, Father, if you're pleased with me, that's what matters. I'm going to hurt for those that reject me. I'm going to hurt for those who judge me. But if I have your favor, Father, that's all that matters. So, Gianna, we've got two minutes. Whatever you want to say to our listening, viewing audience, please share your heart. What should we do? How should we respond today as pro-life followers of Jesus? We should be kind, but fearless. Mm. I, I, I went to an event, I spoke at an event the other day that was barely attended, and only six pastors came, and all the churches were told. And this is why a minimum of 2,500 children are aborted in America each day because of passivity of of, of the Church. Um, I would say that, but then I would also say, you know, I believe that God has been working for some time on my identity, and it's really easy when you have a, quote, story to think that that is the thing that is important about you. But actually... God challenged me in 2011, and he said, you got to choose, because I don't like this uh, survivor, abortion survivor term you've got on yourself, this label. It's the exact opposite of the abundant life I have for you. So which one do you want? Except you said it nicer than that. And it's been hard 
because I've known such rejection to let go and try to keep letting go of what defines me and only letting him define me and tell me I'm enough. Not because of the story, but because he adores me, just me and you. And I think if we're honest, I think we all struggle with that on some level. You know, I'm a father, I'm a mother, I'm a whatever. Well, what if you're just Michael and just Jana because he made you and that makes you enough? Yeah, it's a critically important message for all of us to hear on every level. And friends, when I asked Jana to be on with us, it was because of her unique testimony as an abortion survivor and as a voice to the pro-life movement. But Jana, as, as we talk, I recognize there's so, so much more to the message that you're bringing, so much more to the testimony of, of your life. And I pray that God continues to open doors way beyond the pro-life movement for people to be challenged, <laughs> encouraged, and strengthened uh, by your words. Yeah, we, we get along. We're feisty. We're strong-willed. And we love the Lord. So I, <laughs> I love your spirit. Uh, keep shining. And, and may the Lord use you to shake up a whole lot of lies. And, and, and <clears throat> major leaders that are listening right now that are afraid to take stands, uh, listen yeah. to the voice of this gal born two and a half pounds, surviving an assault on the womb none of us could imagine. Take some words for her and stand up. Come on. Stand up and be strong. Again, G-I-A-N-N-A-J-E-S-N-E-N dot nope, com. Oh, I thought I, I'm looking right at it. I thought I said it, but I, all right, we'll do one, one score from the top. G-I-A-N-N-A-J-E-S-S-E-N. Hey, whenever you're listening and I get things wrong, just call in, let me know. God bless. I look forward to seeing you again. Yes, I hope so soon. Take care. Let's do it. God bless. What a great spirit. What a joy to have her on the air. All right, listen, friends, 15 minutes from now, I'm going to be on YouTube. Ask Dr. Brown on YouTube, ASK Dear Brown, for our weekly YouTube Q&A chat. So join me, all right? 15 minutes from now, we'll be back on YouTube. ASK Dear Brown, Ask Dr. Brown on YouTube, taking your questions exclusively. 